The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, City Rev Church, so glad that we are worshiping together this weekend. Nothing is going to stop us from celebrating that our King, Jesus, rose from the dead. He conquered death itself and conquered sin. So glad that wherever you're at, that we are worshiping together. I want to begin by saying one word, and I want you to think about what goes through your mind when I say this one word. Invincible. Now, I don't know about you, but the, what I think of is I think of Superman. I mean, if there's one person that defines invincibility, it's the man of steel. I mean, he's bulletproof, okay? He's super strong. He can leap tall buildings in a single bound, okay? He can shoot lasers out of his eyes. But even Superman is not truly and thoroughly invincible. He has kryptonite. And it's so true that so often some of the most strongest heroes, they all have their one weakness. I mean, think about Achilles. He has his heel, okay? Each hero has their weakness. So what does it truly mean to be invincible? Now, you might be saying, invincibility, man, I, I don't really think about invincibility. I, I wonder if we think about that more than we think we do. So for example, maybe you've heard this phrase before, Man, if you just believe in yourself, you can do anything. I mean, if you can do anything, that pretty much means that you are invincible. And, and I want to just stop and think about that for a second. Do we really believe if we believe in ourselves, we can do anything? I, I think most of us know, okay, there's some things that I can't do. I mean, we can't leap tall buildings in a single bound, even if we believe in ourselves. But here's what I want to show you. I want to take a look at a story a story in the Bible that talks about invincibility. In fact, it talks about what it would look like for you and for me to be invincible. And it gives us something to believe in that makes us invincible. And that what we're believing in is so much more, so much more powerful, so much more profound than just ourselves. I wanna look at John chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, or a Bible app open to John chapter 12. Let me read you a part of this story. We're gonna start just right there in verse one, John chapter 12, verse one. Here's what it says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, this is chapter 12. If we went back to chapter 11, the, very, the chapter right before that, the previous chapter, that chapter explains that little comment that John made when he says that Jesus has raised Lazarus to life. Here's what happened just in the chapter immediately preceding that. What happened was Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, had sent a message to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, please come quick. Please come to our town, Bethany. Please come because Lazarus, your good friend Lazarus, is so sick and he could die. Jesus uh, gets this message by the time he leaves and travels all the way to Bethany and arrives, Lazarus is dead. In fact, 
Lazarus had been dead for four days. Everyone there is still mourning. They're weeping. He finds Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. They're weeping. The people of Bethany, they're mourning as well. And Jesus is, is tremendously broken. In fact, he weeps with them. And he sa says to Mary, the sister of Lazarus, he says, please show me where you laid him. Take me to his tomb. And so Jesus and Mary and, and a big crowd from Bethany, they go to the tomb and there Jesus once again is, is mourning with them. And then he says this to Mary. And this creates a very uncomfortable conversation between Jesus and Mary. Jesus says to Mary, ask them to roll away the stone from the tomb. And Mary says, Lord, he's been dead for four days if we do that there will be a smell, an odor. There'll be the stench of death is coming out of the tomb. I mean, what an uncomfortable conversation for Mary to have to say to Jesus, please don't make me do this, Lord. I mean, the indignity of that, the pain of that, the, uh, it's just for her to have to smell the, the stench of death from that tomb. It seems like Jesus is asking too much, but Jesus is insistent. And so in this incredible display of humility and submission to Jesus, she asked them to roll away the stone. Jesus looks into that tomb, into the darkness of that tomb, and he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And everyone must have frozen. I mean, they're just like staring into the darkness that is that tomb. And then they, they must have just said, man, am I seeing things? Because it seems like in the shadows in that tomb, I'm, I'm seeing something move around. And sure enough, they see a figure coming out of the tomb. I mean, there must have been shrieks and gasps and screams. I mean, it's like a horror movie. This, man, this being is coming out of the tomb. It's a body still in the grave clothes. I mean, everyone freezes. And Jesus says, Help him out of his grave clothes. And as they walked up, can you imagine as they're un unwinding and pulling away the, the linen cloths around his face? They must have been wondering what they're going to see, but sure enough, they see the face of Lazarus. He's healthy. He's alive. He has been risen from the dead. What an incredible moment. And so this just happened in the previous chapter. The one who's writing this, this book, John, he was actually there. He's one of Jesus' disciples. And they left Bethany, and a couple months or weeks later, they come back to Bethany in preparation for the Passover. Um, they're going to end up in Jerusalem, which is just a couple miles away, to celebrate the feast of Passover. So they're there at Lazarus' house having a feast. And John can't help himself. He says, and there's Lazarus. Remember, I just told you, Jesus brought him back from the dead. I mean, they must have just stared at Lazarus and just caught themselves like, I just can't believe you're actually here. I mean, I, I saw you alive and then you got sick and I saw you sick and then I saw you dead and then I was at your funeral. I gave a great speech for you at your funeral, by the way, Lazarus. I, I should tell you what I said. And now I can't believe I saw you come back out of the tomb and here you are alive and we're having dinner together. It must have been an incredible thing. I mean, John can't get over it. He keeps reminding us, Jesus raised him from the dead. They're sitting there, they're feasting together in Bethany in preparation to go to Jerusalem for Passover. And this is what happens next at this feast. This is an unbelievably beautiful moment. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled 
with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. What happens? They're sitting down at this feast. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, gets up and she gets a jar. One of the other eyewitnesses tells us it's an alabaster jar and she takes it and it's full of expensive ointment made from pure nard. That is sometimes also called spike nard. You can still buy that essential oil to this day. It's, an ori it's originally from India and would have been unbelievably expensive. I mean, this is a treasure. Spices and oils like this in this time period were as expensive as precious metals sometimes. And so this has been brought in all the way from India. How expensive is it? Well, Judas tells us how much he thinks it would have been worth. He says 300 denarii. That's probably in today's time something like 30 to $40,000. Mary takes this ointment pours it out on Jesus' feet. She pours, she doesn't just dab some onto a, a cloth and wipe a little bit. She pours it all out. That's why Judas says, couldn't that have been used for something better than, than just pouring it out on Jesus' feet? But she pours it all out on Jesus' feet. And it says, the fragrance fills the room. And then she takes her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. Now you're saying, man, could they just not afford a towel or something? Well, no, clearly, if they own a treasure like a pound of spikenard valued at thirty to $40,000, I think they can afford towels. I think they had towels laying around. The problem, that's not what that is. So why is she wiping it with her hair? Is that some kind of cultural practice? Well, actually, it's probably weirder in their culture than it is in our culture to do that. No, this is an unbelievably extravagant and beautiful act of worship and honor that Mary is doing for Jesus. What is she doing? Well, um, there's, there's two words that are the same in John 11 and John 12. The word is smell. And both of them involve an encounter, encounter between Jesus and Mary. Because remember in John 11, when Jesus gets to the tomb and he asks Mary to have them roll the stone away, what does Mary say? She says, there's going to be a smell that comes out of the grave. Please don't make me do this. It's the stench of death. And then what's the very next encounter we see between Jesus and Mary? Mary is pouring out the ointment and it's filling the entire house with a smell, a fragrance of perfume. It's the same word, it's a smell. What is this moment? This is a, a moment of reconciliation on, a, on the part of Mary with Jesus, but she's saying something powerful. What is perfume used for? Perfume was used to cover over smells and it was made so that, that the, the smell could be even more fragrant than the bad smells, the stenches. But she is saying by pouring this out, she's saying, I have no more need of this, Jesus. Why? What did Jesus do? He didn't just cover over the stench of death. He undid it. 
he undid the stench of death by calling, Je by calling by Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. It's, it's like she's saying, I have no need for this. If you can conquer death and undo the stench and sting of death, why would I have any need for this? And she pours it out on Jesus' feet as an offering. But there's another reason that Jesus says this is significant. Look what Jesus says after, Lazarus, after um, Judas calls out Mary for, for what he thinks is a waste. Here's what Jesus says. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. See, here's what Jesus says. The significance of this, you probably cannot grasp. She's preparing me for my burial. See, this is six days before Passover. See, what probably none of them could have possibly grasped is that the next day would be the first day of the week and they would make the short trip from Bethany to Jerusalem. And on that Sunday, the crowds who had heard about what Jesus had done in calling Lazarus out of the tomb, what, what they would do is they, they, they would be waiting for him as he's entering into Jerusalem. And what they, they probably didn't realize as they're sitting around feasting together is that the next day crowds would be calling and singing Hosanna and putting down palm branches and taking off their, their robes and their cloaks as Jesus entered in Jerusalem. See, what they probably could not have grasped as they sat down for dinner that night is throughout that very next week as Jesus is teaching in the temple, the tensions would be mounting and the religious leaders would be plotting Jesus' death and Judah the one standing there commenting on what Mary did would be betraying Jesus in the background for 30 pieces of silver because he's a thief. See, what they couldn't have grasped is that next Thursday would be the last supper they would sit down with Jesus before his death. See, what they could not have grasped is before the week is out, they would be late at night on Thursday night in a garden and Jesus would be off alone as the disciples are dozing and Jesus would be wrestling with God as he squares up to the suffering he's about to undergo for the sake of all creation. See, what they couldn't have grasped is that soldiers would march in before the week was out would march in and arrest Jesus in, in the middle of the night because they're too afraid to do it in the daytime. And that they would hold a trial and because they can't hold anything against Jesus, they'd have to drum up false charges against Jesus and have a trial that's a total sham, total injustice. And what they couldn't have grasped is that Jesus was about to be passed from ruler to ruler to ruler until they could find one that would put Jesus to death. And what they couldn't have grasped is by the next Friday morning, Pilate would have Jesus whipped within an inch of his life, beaten, mocked, stripped, and then crucified. He would carry his own cross out of the city. They would nail his hands and his feet to the cross and raise him up. See, what they couldn't have grasped is by that time next week, Jesus would have already been hanging on the cross, dragging himself up for hours, trying to get a, a breath on the cross until eventually he says, it is finished and hung lifelessly on that cross. See, what they didn't realize is by that time next week, Jesus would have died on a cross and buried. See, what Jesus is saying is the unbelievable indignity that he was about to face. This honor was preparing him for his death. See, here's uh, the last couple verses I want you to see here. It's, it's profound. I want to pick it up in verse 9. Here's what it says. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I mean, John just keeps saying it over and over and over. He can't help himself. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans. Watch this. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, you've got to think about this for a second. Here's the, the, the religious leaders who are so jealous and threatened by Jesus, and they come together, and here's what they say. They say, man, this is terrible. People are believing in Jesus because they saw his power to call Lazarus out from the grave and to bring Lazarus, Lazarus back from the dead. So we've got to stop it. And what is their plan? To put Lazarus to death. Like, do you see the absolute absurdity in that plan? I mean, we're going out, to outthink Jesus. I mean, if he's going to keep showing his power to, to bring people back, back to life, we'll just have to put him to death. But don't you, I mean, come up with a different plan because clearly if Jesus wants Lazarus alive, nothing is going to stop that. Jesus clearly has the power to bring Lazarus up from the grave. See, here's what happened to Lazarus. If Jesus raises him up, what can any person do to him? If they keep killing Lazarus, Jesus can keep raising him from the dead. If, if Jesus raises Lazarus to life, if Jesus calls him out of the grave, calls him out of the tomb, if Jesus raises Lazarus to life, that pretty much makes Lazarus invincible. What can anyone do to Lazarus? Now, maybe you're saying, look, okay, I, I get it. Okay, that, that makes sense. But, I mean... Good for Lazarus, okay? That's good for him. I mean, he, he got raised from, from, the, from the dead. I mean, I, I see how that makes him invincible, but I don't feel very in, invincible. I mean, what does that have to do with me? See, there's something else that they couldn't have grasped. They couldn't have grasped that, you know, this is Jesus' final week, that he would be dead before weeks out. They couldn't have possibly grasped that, even though that's what his enemies, Jesus' enemies, were hoping for. But here's what his enemies couldn't grasp. Here's what the crowds couldn't have possibly grasped. He, here's what his friends couldn't have grasped. Here's what his, his, his followers, his disciples, even in the moment when Jesus died, who scatter and in fear, here's what they could not have grasped, is that by week's end, the same one who, was, who had called Lazarus out of the tomb would himself go into a tomb, and on Sunday morning, he would roll his own stone away. No one's going to be calling Jesus out of the tomb. Jesus is going to rise up out of the tomb. He himself is going to conquer death itself. He is going to undo death. And in that moment, he not only conquers death, but he conquers sin. See, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that our sins are placed on Jesus on the cross. And in that sense, our old selves die with Jesus. And it says we are risen with Jesus. When Jesus came out of the tomb, we come out of the tomb with him. We rise up. So Jesus doesn't just cover our sins. He doesn't just pay for our sins and die. When he rises it up, he undoes it. He undoes our sins. He removes the chasm that is between us and God. And if he removes that chasm, 
then that means that God, that we've been restored to God. That means God is for us, not against us. That means that if God is with us, that means who can do anything to hurt us. That means that we've been adopted into God's family. That means all of the protective and providing instincts of Almighty God are leveraged for us. That means if the chasm has been moved away and we've been reconciled with our Creator, that means every single detail of our lives works together for good. That's what Jesus accomplished when he rose from the dead. We rose with him, just like Lazarus. If Jesus rises us from the dead, what could anyone do to us? We're invincible. Well, you say, um, look, I'd like to believe that, but I'm just not sure that God's for me. I I mean, I I make mistakes. I mean, I... I don't think, I, I, I think that maybe the bad things that are happening in my life are because I'm, I'm just not quite good enough. I mean, maybe if I was a super Christian and did everything right and was more religious and went to church more and prayed more, maybe then. But see, all that's this just religion. Like, l- let me just give you an example to, to, of what this looks like. I, I've got an illustration here that, that I want to show you because I think sometimes as Christians, we misunderstand a little bit how this works. Um, okay, let's just say that, that this right here is, is God. We'll use this, this glass um, will serve a, as God right here. And what, what do we know about God? Well, we know that God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly good. And so we'll say that this water here represents his goodness. So I'm going to fill this up, but I'm going to fill this up all the way to the very top, which is probably going to make a mess, but I'm going to fill it all the way to the top. Why? Because God is perfectly good. Okay, so this is this right here is God. But it says that God made us, so he made us in, in his image, so um, here, here's us, okay? Um, and, and in the same way, okay, so let me just fill this up. We'll say this again, this water is our, is our goodness, okay? And so um, what the Bible says is, how good do you have to be to get to heaven, okay? Well, you have to be as good as God is, and God is perfectly holy, but here's the reality. We're not perfectly holy. I don't think anyone in their right mind would say that they are perfect. I don't think anyone would say something like that. I mean, we've all done sin. So what are some of the things that we've done? Well, I mean, at some point in our life, everyone's like, you know, told a lie. You know, at some point, I mean, everyone at some point has, has cheated or been selfish. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm taking some of this out. We're not perfect like God is. I mean, we've, we've been boastful. We've been, you know, prideful. Uh, at some point, we've, we've hurt someone else. We've been thoughtless. Okay, we're not perfect like God. And so we'll say that this deficit right here, that's, that's our sin. And so here's the challenge. This creates a gulf between us because God is perfectly holy and we're not. And so this creates a gulf between us. So how do we fill this back up? Well, I know you just have to, to scoop some good back in. So if I, you know, if I go to church enough, I can scoop the good back in. But no, it doesn't work like that. No, that, that's not, it, we can't just fill good back in. The good doesn't outweigh the bad. No, we've sinned against an infinite God and the punishment is eternal. So we're, we're in trouble. There's only one way we can fix this. And it's that God, what it says is God came to, uh, to us. He came down to earth in the form of a man like Jesus Christ. And, and what did he do? Well, well, here's what Jesus did. Jesus, it says he, he pours himself out for us. He pours himself out. And look, now, 
He takes our sin on himself and he makes us righteous. He washes us clean. But here's the part, so that, that's the message of the gospel, but here's the implications of the gospel that I think so often we misunderstand as Christians. See, Jesus paid for sin, but when he rose again from the dead, he undoes it and we're in a state of perpetual forgiveness. So here's what it looks like. He's pouring out his grace. So even though we, we've put our faith in Jesus and we've been washed clean, so when we mess up, nothing changes in our status before God. We'll never be perfect, but we keep striving to live up to who God has made us to be. But his grace keeps pouring over us. There's never a gap because of the power of his resurrection in our lives. Christians, do you realize what the resurrection accomplished for us? Christian, do you realize what Jesus did? He washed away your sins permanently on the cross. He washed your sins away so that you are permanently a child of God. And, and he is always working things together for your good because of Jesus. And because of that, we, he's made us, it says, new creations. Born again is not just a phrase, it's not just a slogan. He has made us something new. When he rose up, we rose with him. And now God is watching over. He's taking all, there may be chaos all around us, but he is ordering everything with perfect intentionality for you because of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. You know, in these uncertain times, it doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter what things are causing you fear or anxiety or makes you feel vulnerable or stressed. If God is for you, if he raised you up, if every detail in your life is in his hands, nothing can possibly happen to you except that which God knows is for your good. I, I keep going back to this passage in this season and finding so much strength from this passage. Can I just read this over you? It's in Romans 8. Here's what it says, Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We could add to that list. We could say, what could possibly separate us from God's love? Could it be a lost job? Could it be illness or sickness or, or, the, or a rocky economy or a pandemic or a plague? Could anything separate us from the love of God? Here's what he says. He goes on to say, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to know this Easter weekend 
the power of the moment that we are celebrating. When Jesus rose from the dead, we rose with him. And if Jesus has raised us up, then we're invincible. What can possibly happen to us outside of the precision plan of God for our life? And he is all powerful and all good and he loves us. You may be watching this and say, look, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm good enough or religious enough or spiritual enough to have God work in my life. Well, just like we just demonstrated with that water, it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. And it is a gift. You may have spent all your life saying, you know, I, I hope God's for me because I'm calling myself a Christian or I, I go to church or my family's Christian or, you know, I pray or I'm a pretty good person or, you know, I've avoided all the bad sins or I try my best. He knows that I'm sincere. That's not what gets you the love of God. It's only what Jesus did for you, and that is a free gift. This could be the weekend he rises you up so that you know your eternal destiny is heaven and that you know that every moment of your life is ordered by Almighty God working for your good. Let Jesus call you to life today. Is that you? You may be there watching on your computer or tablet or phone or maybe you're watching on your television, but right there in this moment could be the moment that your life and your eternity is transformed. Receive the gift of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus as the one who saves you. Is that you? Do you want today to be the day that everything changes for you and you're reconciled to your Creator. If that's you, then let me just lead you in this simple prayer. Let, let's pray together. And if that's you, I just want you to make this prayer your prayer to the one who made you. Pray this right there where you're at. Pray this to God. Say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for providing a way to save me. I know that I've made mistakes. I know that I've sinned, but Jesus conquered my sin through his death and resurrection. I give you my life. I will follow you. I will make you my king and my savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, that is the greatest possible thing you could do your entire eternity has been transformed. Here's what I want to ask you to do. There's a place you can let us know and let your online community know. There's a place that you can click. Yes, that was me. I put my faith in Jesus. We just want to celebrate with you. And that actually might give courage to other people who took that step. So I want you to click that space right there. Right in the, the comments, there's a link, cityrev.org faith. I want you to click on that link. There's a short form. It just asks you a couple questions that you can fill out. And I want you to fill that out because we want to celebrate with you. We love to send you a Bible and follow up with you and answer any questions you have and pray over you. So click that link, cityrev.org faith so that we can celebrate with you. Well, church, we are going to take the rest of our time to celebrate the incredible moment when Jesus rose from the dead and we rose up with him because here's what we know. That reconciled us to our creator. And since he reconciled us to our creator, it doesn't matter what happens in the world. We know who is protecting and providing for us every 
step of the way. We know that no matter what happens in this world, we know who gives us everything we need. We know who provides for us. Let's worship him together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.